Section 2 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Argument of the Epistle to the Romans I know not whether it is worth my while to dwell at any greater length in praising the utility of this epistle, because I am afraid lest my eulogy of it, which must, without doubt, fall far below its real value and importance, should only contribute to lessen its celebrity. Besides, its character is much more immediately discerned at first sight, and its real nature better explained than can be depicted by any language. I prefer, therefore, to pass on to the argument, which will incontrovertibly prove that this epistle, besides many other excellencies of the highest order, possesses this peculiar property and unrivalled honour, that the expositor, who has attained to a true understanding of its contents, has the doors thrown open for entering into the deepest and most hidden treasures of the word of truth. The whole epistle is so methodical that the very preface is distinguished by the artificial character of its structure. This art appears in many passages which will be noticed in our remarks on the epistle, but especially in deriving the principal argument from the preface. For, having commenced with the praise of his apostolic office, Paul gradually advances to commend the gospel, and since this necessarily leads him to dispute concerning faith, he passes on, conducted as it were by the context, to the consideration of the subject. He thus commences the principal question of the whole epistle, our justification by faith, which he discusses to the end of the fifth chapter. The subject, therefore, proposed for our consideration in these chapters is that the mercy of God in Christ is the alone righteousness of man, which, being offered by the gospel, is apprehended by faith but men are soothed and lulled to sleep by their vices and so deluded by a false opinion of righteousness as to imagine that they stand in no need of the righteousness of faith unless they have been cast down from every kind of confidence besides being inebriated by the pleasure of their lusts and sunk in deep security they cannot easily be roused to seek for righteousness unless struck by the terror of the divine judgment the apostle undertakes to convince them of their iniquity and to shake them out of their drowsiness when pierced by the arrows of conviction paul in the commencement proves the whole human race to be guilty of ingratitude from the very structure of the world because they do not in so great an excellency of his works acknowledge a creator nay when compelled to own him they do not honour his majesty as they ought but profane and violate it by their vanity thus all are proved guilty of impiety which is the most detestable of all crimes and to show more clearly that all have revolted from the lord he enumerates the base and horrid transgressions to which men are everywhere liable this affords an evident proof of their degeneracy before god because they are signs of divine anger which could exist only in the wicked for the jews and some of the gentiles while they covered their internal wickedness by a veil of external holiness did not by any means think they could be convicted of these crimes, and therefore imagined themselves exempted from a common damnation. The apostle directs his pen against this pretended holiness, and, as he could not strip such characters of their mask in the presence of men, he summons them to the judgment of God, from whose eyes their secret desires are not concealed. He next divides mankind into Jews and Gentiles, and places each of them before God's tribunal he deprives the gentiles of their pretended excuse from ignorance because conscience by which they were more than sufficiently convicted served them instead of a law 
he particularly presses upon the jews the written law which they produced in their defence and having proved them to be transgressors of it they could not deny their iniquity since sentence was now passed against them by the very mouth of god at the same time he meets an objection which might seem to favour them namely that injury was done to the covenant of god if the jews were not separated from others which was a mark of holiness to that nation he on this occasion for the first time teaches that they did not excel others by the right of the covenant since they had departed from it by their own unfaithfulness but that he might not derogate in any respect from the constancy of the divine promise he grants them some prerogative from the covenant which consisted in god's mercy not their merit because it pertains to their own excellence to continue equal to the gentiles he then confirms it from the authority of scripture that the jews and gentiles are all sinners where he treats a little concerning the use of the law after plainly depriving the human race of all confidence in their own virtue and boasting in their own righteousness and affrighting them by the severity of the divine judgment he now returns to the subject proposed justification by faith where he explains the nature of faith and how we may acquire the righteousness of christ by its means he subjoins to the end of the third chapter a few striking questions for the purpose of repelling the ferocity of human pride and boasting that it may not dare to exalt itself against the grace of god he prevents the jews from confining such distinguished grace of god to their own nation and claims it also for the gentiles in the fourth chapter he draws his argument from an example proposing the distinguished one of abraham liable to no cavils since being the father of the faithful he ought to be regarded as a rule and general pattern when therefore he has proved abraham to be justified by faith he teaches us to pursue the same path and asserts that by comparing contrary subjects the righteousness of works vanishes where a place is allowed to justification by faith he confirms this by the opinion of david who places the happiness of man in the mercy of god and thus deprives works of the character of conferring happiness on man he then pursues more at length what he had briefly alluded to before that there was no reason why the jews should exalt themselves above the gentiles who have this common happiness equally with the jews since the scripture states that righteousness was conferred on abraham in uncircumcision in this passage he adds something on the use of circumcision he then subjoins that the promise of salvation depends on the alone goodness of god for it rests upon the law it will not possess a power of giving peace to the consciences in which it ought to be established nor will it ever attain perfection we ought to regard the truth of god alone and not ourselves in embracing this promise if we wish to make it firm and secure and imitate abraham who directed all his attention to the power of god without considering his own case at the end of the chapter that he may apply the example adduced more nearly to a universal cause he institutes a comparison between instances exactly similar the fifth chapter after briefly touching upon the fruit and effect of the righteousness of faith is almost entirely taken up in amplification for the purpose of giving a better illustration of the subject for deriving his argument from the greater to the less he shows how much we who have been already redeemed and reconciled to god ought to expect from his love which has been so liberal to abandoned sinners as to have bestowed upon us his only begotten and well-beloved son he afterwards compares sin with gratuitous righteousness christ with adam death with life the law with grace whence it is fully established that our evils however great are absorbed in the infinite goodness of god paul in the sixth chapter descends to sanctification which we obtain in christ 
for the flesh is liable as soon as it has enjoyed a slight taste of this grace peaceably to indulge its vices and lusts as if it were now dead but paul on the contrary contends in this passage that we cannot perceive righteousness in christ unless we apprehend at the same time sanctification he argues from baptism by which we are initiated into the partaking of christ and buried by it in christ that being dead to ourselves we should by his life be raised to newness of life it follows therefore that none can put on his righteousness without regeneration he thence exhorts us to purity and holiness which ought necessarily to exhibit themselves in such as have been translated from a kingdom of sin to a kingdom of righteousness and have rejected the impious indulgence of the flesh which seeks for a more unrestrained licentiousness of sinning in christ he also inserts a brief mention of the abrogation of the law which displays the excellence of the new testament where the holy spirit is promised with the forgetfulness of our sins in the seventh chapter he enters into an important dispute concerning the use of the law which he had before pointed at when he was as it were engaged on another subject and assigns its inability to do anything of itself except the causing of our condemnation as a reason for our being freed from the power of the law and to prevent this from being perverted to the dishonour of the law he boldly vindicates it from all calumny for he shows the fault to have been ours why the law which was given for life afforded cause for death at the same time he explains how sin may be increased by it he then passes on to describe the struggle between the spirit and the flesh which the sons of god feel in themselves as long as they are surrounded with the prison of this mortal body for they carry about with them the remains of concupiscence by which they are constantly withdrawn in some measure from obeying the law the eighth chapter is full of consolation lest the discouraged consciences of the faithful should become dejected when they heard of their disobedience which the apostle had already proved or rather of their imperfect obedience but that the impious might not from this cause lull themselves in security he first testifies that this blessing belongs only to the regenerate in whom the spirit of god lives and flourishes he therefore explains two things first that all who are inserted into the lord christ by his spirit are out of all danger and hazard of damnation however much they may as yet be laden with sin and in the next place that all those who remain in the flesh without enjoying the sanctification of the spirit are by no means partakers of so great a blessing he then explains how great the certainty of our confidence is when the spirit of god by his own testimony expels all doubt and trembling besides he at the same time proves by anticipation that the security of eternal life cannot be interrupted or disturbed by the present miseries to which we are subject in this mortal state nay our salvation is rather promoted by such exercises and all our present miseries will be regarded as nothing when compared with the excellence of salvation in christ he confirms this by the example of jesus who as he is the first-born and holds the preeminence in the family of god so he is the first prototype to whom all ought to be conformed the apostle therefore as if the state of the christian was secure joined a very striking and very excellent boasting and glorying by which he courageously insults over the power and machinations of satan but since many were deeply concerned when they saw the jews the first guardians and heirs of the covenant abhor christ because indeed they hence inferred either that the covenant was translated from the posterity of abraham which despised the perfecting of it or that the messiah was not the promised redeemer since he had not provided better for the nation of israel he begins to meet this question from the commencement of the ninth chapter in the preface therefore he speaks of his love to his countrymen 
that he may not appear to say anything from hatred, and at the same time kindly states the ornaments which distinguished the Jewish people, and after this he gently passes on to remove all the offence occasioned by their blindness. He divides the sons of Abraham into two classes, to show that not all who had descended from him according to the flesh ought to be reckoned among the seed for the purpose of their being made partakers of the grace of the covenant, and, on the other hand, that strangers, if ingrafted by faith, are reckoned as sons, and of this he adduces an example in Esau and Jacob. In this passage, therefore, he again directs our attention to the election of God, on which the whole business must be necessarily thought to depend. Since this election is found on the alone mercy of God, we seek in vain for its cause in the dignity of man. Rejection is opposed to election, and though the justice of this is undoubted, yet it has no higher cause than the will of God. Towards the end of the chapter, he proves that testimony had been borne both to the calling of the Gentiles and the reprobation of the Jews by the predictions of the prophets. In the tenth chapter, he again commences with testifying his love to the Jews, and then states that a vain confidence in works was the cause of their ruin. He, on the other hand, meets an objection which may be adduced from the law by showing us to be led by the hand of the law to the righteousness of faith. He adds that this righteousness is promiscuously offered to all nations by the kindness of God, but is finally apprehended by those whom God has illuminated with his special grace. He states the predictions of Moses and Isaiah to show that more of the Gentiles than of the Jews would attain this blessing. Isaiah openly and expressly prophesied concerning the calling of the Gentiles, and Moses of the hardening of the Jews. The question therefore still remained whether there was any difference between the seed of Abraham and other nations according to God's covenant. While he is desirous to solve this question, he advises them in the first place not to limit the work of the Lord to the mere appearance seen by the eyes, since the elect often escape our knowledge, as Elijah was formerly mistaken when he thought that religion had perished among the people of Israel, though seven thousand true worshippers still remained. But lest we should be troubled on account of the number of unbelievers, who, as we see, hate the gospel, he in the second place asserts that the covenant of the Lord resides also in the carnal posterity of Abraham, but with such as are predestined by the free election of the Lord. He then directs his remarks to the Gentiles to prevent them from being too fierce and haughty on account of their adoption, when they insult over the rejection of the Jews, although they surpass them in nothing but the favour of the Lord, which ought rather to be to them a subject of humility nor had god's favour forsaken the seed of abraham for the jews are to be provoked by the faith of the gentiles to emulate them so that the lord will thus gather together all his own israel the three following chapters consist of a great variety of precepts the twelfth chapter instructs the christian by general precepts how to direct his life and conversation the thirteenth is chiefly occupied in vindicating the power of the civil magistrate we are hence entitled to infer with certainty that there were even then some turbulent spirits who thought that Christian liberty could not stand firm without disturbing the power of the state, but that Paul might not appear to impose any duties on the church except those of charity, he proves this obedience also to be contained under love. He afterwards subjoins certain precepts, not yet given, for the regulating of their conduct. In the fourteenth chapter he exhorts them to pursue a line of behaviour particularly necessary in that age, for since there were many who insisted on observing the mosaic ritual with the most determined superstition, they could not endure any neglect of these ceremonies without taking very serious offence. For such as were confirmed in their abrogation, for the purpose of destroying superstition, designedly pretended to entertain a contempt for them, both offended from a want of moderation, 
for the superstitions condemned those who were opposed to them as despisers of the divine law who on the other hand very unseasonably jested at their simplicity the apostle therefore adopts a plan of moderation suitable to both parties for he debars the latter from indulging in pride and haughtiness and the former from too great peevishness and moroseness at the same time he prescribes as the best means for christian liberty to confine it within the bounds of love and edification and he consults very well for the interest of the weak while he forbids them to attempt anything in opposition to the voice of conscience the fifteenth chapter begins with the repetition of a general sentiment as the clause of the whole dispute that such as are endowed with more strength should exert their vigour in confirming the weak but since the ceremonies of moses sowed constant dissension between the jews and gentiles he settles all emulation among them by removing the subject of their pride and boasting for he teaches both jews and gentiles that salvation consists in the alone mercy of god and it is their duty relying on this to lay aside all haughtiness of spirit and knit together by this grace in the hope of one inheritance mutually to embrace each other finally being desirous to pass on to the commendation of his office as an apostle which secured no small authority to his doctrine he embraces this opportunity for making an excuse and begging pardon on account of his rashness in taking upon himself with such confidence the office of teacher among the romans he induces them also to entertain some hopes of his arrival which in the commencement he had stated that he had hitherto desired and attempted without accomplishing he adds also the reason which at present prevents him namely the care of the alms raised by the churches of macedonia and achaia committed to his trust for relieving the poverty of the saints in jerusalem the last chapter is almost entirely taken up in salutations it is however interspersed with some admirable precepts and closes with an excellent prayer End of section two.